0: Welcome to The Important Part, Investing with Liz Young. I'm Liz Young, Head of Investment Strategy at SoFi, here to help cut through the large amount of information out there about investing and get to the important part. With the help of my guests, you'll gain valuable insights, new perspectives, and the knowledge to confidently make your investment decisions. Welcome back, everybody, to The Important Part. We are making our way through the first month of Q2, which means that Q1 earnings season is well underway and whiplash in the market has continued. And sadly, I think it's going to keep continuing as we get through this earnings season and maybe even as we get through summer. We're dealing with a lot of things. And I know I've covered that quite a few times in this podcast, and I'm sure you've heard it in other outlets as well. We're dealing with a lot of headwinds and we're dealing with a lot of uncertainties. Since the last episode has dropped, we also got another inflation reading, a CPI reading, 8.5%, which is a big, big number. Many people are trying to say that that's the peak inflation. It very well may be. My concern is that even if it is peak inflation, that doesn't mean it's coming down quickly anytime soon, and we're still going to be dealing with this problem. So I don't want to lead anybody to believe that Even if it is peak inflation, it doesn't mean that the problems are behind us. It could also mean a peak in spending. As prices have risen and as they remain high, you start to see the consumer have to make different decisions. And what I mean by that is choosing between spending money on more discretionary items versus necessary items when we think about things like food and energy. We know that food prices have started to really rise and energy prices have been high for a while. So as that keeps eating into consumers' bank accounts, they have to make choices about what they might have to give up or other things that they can't spend as much money on. And that affects the economy through GDP. It affects the economy through consumption. It also might start affecting business spending. And as we move through earnings season, that is a narrative that I think we're going to hear from a lot of CEOs, that there's a lot of uncertainty They're questioning how much they can spend, how much they can expand for the rest of the year, and they maybe hit the pause button on capital expenditures, on other business investment, until we have a clearer picture of what happens with inflation. So what does all of that mean for market participants? First of all, what I would say is, despite all of these headwinds, and despite the fact that we've had a yield curve inversion, and we've got a lot of question marks about how much volatility is still ahead of us, And we've got midterm elections coming up, which are usually something that pressure the market. Despite all of that, the answer is never to stop investing. And it's really important to remember that whether you're a new investor, a seasoned investor, somebody that is trying to plan for certain goals down the road, the answer is never to stop investing. It's just that you have to shift your approach and probably build positions in the portfolio that maybe you didn't have a year ago. Those positions would be things like defensive assets, defensive equities. So think about sectors. Think about consumer staples, utilities, healthcare, particularly healthcare. I really like the healthcare sector right now for a number of different reasons. In the large cap space, it is thought of as more of a defensive area. But if you look at healthcare in the small cap space, you can get really good growth opportunity in things like biotech and pharma. Building positions in sectors that pay dividends will have more of a defensive posture in the portfolio. And what I would consider, you get paid while you wait. So if we're waiting out some of this volatility, why not get paid in dividends along the way and own some things that aren't as volatile as the rest of the sectors in the market? Also, one of the opinions that is getting a little bit more traction, it was unpopular a few weeks ago when we started talking about it, but gaining a little more traction now is the idea that bonds can be a good place to build a position as well, especially some of those treasury bonds. And looking at the yield curve, thinking about the fact that bonds have sold off more sharply than stocks have already this year has made the valuation story a little bit more attractive for bonds. And that's something that we hadn't talked about for many, many years, that bonds continue to be so overvalued and they had nowhere to go but down, but now they've gone down quite a bit. And if you believe that, we can see the Fed have some sort of dovish pivot or come off the hiking gas later in the year, or or just the fact that maybe they don't make it to eight more hikes this year. Bonds could be a good protection element of the portfolio. So again, it's never to stop investing. It's to just change around what you have in the portfolio. This is a good time to make sure that you have some of that defensive posture in the portfolio, that you have things that are there to protect in times of volatility. All right. So having said all of that, one of the things that we're focusing on this month in this episode is Financial Literacy Month. And a lot of the timeless investing topics and disciplines that we think about in the industry are are things that we're going to cover here. I have two wonderful women as my guests this month, Jenny Harrington and Bryn Talkington. The three of us do CNBC's Halftime Report show. And... What we talked about are a lot of different things that either newer investors, younger investors, or even just people that have been in it for a long time need to remember at times when we're going through these economic transitions. Jenny Harrington is the CEO of Gilman Hill Asset Management and portfolio manager of the firm's flagship equity income strategy. She's also a contributor to CNBC. Prior to joining Gilman Hill, Ms. Harrington was a vice president and associate portfolio manager at Newberger Berman, a Lehman Brothers subsidiary. She began her career at Goldman Sachs, where she worked as an associate and financial analyst in the investment management and equities divisions. She currently serves as trustee of Hollands University and as a member of the investment committee of the Sibley Memorial Hospital Foundation. Bryn Talkington is managing partner of Requisite Capital Management. Bryn has more than 20 years of experience in the financial services industry. Her areas of expertise include all facets of asset management with a focus on capital markets, alternatives, and investor behavior. Bryn has spent most of her career working with private clients, foundations, and endowments. Prior to requisite capital management, Bryn was an executive director at UBS Asset Management, where she worked for 15 years. Prior to UBS, she worked at Bear Stearns. With that, let's get to the interview. Jenny, Bryn, thank you so much for joining me for Financial Literacy Month. I cannot wait to do this episode. I think we're going to have way more insight than we have time for, (laughs) but I am really excited to have this conversation. And there's a lot of stuff, a lot of content that goes out about Financial Literacy Month. And I think that the three of us can put together some insights that are useful for the new investor, the younger investor, things that we wish our younger selves would have known when we were starting out. So let's just jump right into it. We throw the term around financial literacy all the time, as if everybody knows exactly what that means. I think most people apply it to personal finances and thinking about things like borrowing money or checking and savings accounts. We're going to apply it to investing. So what does financial literacy mean to you when we're thinking about investing? Bryn, you can go first.
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, Liz, thanks for having me on. There's no other people I'd rather be hanging out with than you and Jenny. (laughs) You know, I think financial literacy, the phrase, is a very innocuous way to start the conversation with someone who's interested in taking control of their destiny, of which money is a key ingredient. And I think ultimately financial literacy is more about knowing yourself, your biases, your goals. And what you're wanting to do, which, once again, money is, a, money is a key ingredient. My goal is freedom to do what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a great quote. Of course, I forget who said it. But it's, you know, people who live far below their means enjoy a freedom that people upgrading their lives can't
0: fathom. Wow. Jenny, what does it mean to you?
2: So the two things, when you say financial literacy with respect to investing, the two things are understanding the value of compounding. And, and the value of patience. And I think about when I was in business school, they gave this like really famous story. I'm sure it's not real, but it was about some woman who like bartered her salary for something. She said, okay, you'll give me like one grain of rice on the first day, double it the second, double it the day after that. And by the 30th day, she had like all the rice in China, you know, so, something like that. Because the value of compounding is so extraordinary. And I'm constantly stunned by how, there's, you know, like you can be so smart and so sophisticated in whatever your field is, but then not know to what seems to us like the most basic principles of investing. And so that seven ten rule to me is the most important element of financial literacy and investing, which is knowing that if your money grows at 7% a year, which is totally reasonable to expect in the long history of the Mm -hmm. market, it should double every 10 years. So if you're 30 years old and you put $10,000 away, when you're 40, it'll be 20. When you're 50, it'll be 40. When you're 60, it'll be 80. And that's real. And then the other part is patience. And then it's a long battle. So one of my clients said to me like a month or so ago, can you, can you talk to my stepdaughter? And she's 36 years old. She's an artist. She works for one of the Ivy League universities. She's brilliant, right? But she doesn't understand this at all. So we were talking and I'm like, all right, look, I'm not gonna help you. You know, you need to do this on your own and you need to do it on your own so you can build up the vocabulary. So she plunked it in Fidelity. She put it in five funds. She emails me yesterday. She writes, hey, basically like it's super, I know it's a long game, but it's disheartening to only see losses. I wish I'd been at this sooner, right? Because she's only been in it for a month. And I said, I'm happy to be your spiritual advisor on this. And what I wrote to her is investing is a very long path you've been at it for a couple months. Success comes in years. Just shut your eyes, chill out, and remember that it's a long slog on an upward trending path. So it's compounding and it's the value of patience.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that I say all the time, and and this is really just the value of compounding more simplified, is that you must be present to win. You don't get the value of compounding if you take your money out of the market. So if you get frustrated over that 30-day period and you pull it out and you're like, forget it, this isn't for me, or this isn't working, I'm doing it wrong, right? And you shove your money under the mattress. It doesn't compound under the mattress. And part of compounding is experiencing losses along the way, and it, it is sometimes tough to look at those. It was tough earlier this year, frankly, mm-hmm. for even experienced investors. Right? What I think would be interesting for everybody to hear. I mean, the three of us have been in this industry. I'm going on my 18th year. What Here's got drinking, you here? Liz. <laughs> <laughs> I don't exactly, feel like one anymore. I <laughs> oh, I hate saying that. I hate saying 18 years. So what got you here? What lit your fire about it when it all started? And and I'll share my story too, but I didn't, I didn't plan to be here, but I'd love to hear how you guys got here.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'll start. I will say just to, I I wanted to close something on the compounding about Jenny's rice story, because this is true. The one reason people don't understand compounding is it's actually exponential, Mm -hmm. not linear. Right. And what I mean by that is if you take a penny, and you double it every day for 31 days. At the end of 31 days, it's $10 million. Yeah. But like you're like, that can't be possible. But that's what exponential growth and compounding is. So you can you can do the math. And so I mean, I think why I've had a, you know, we'll say a modicum of, of success. I really, it comes down to grit. Because when I grew up, the only people in my family that even talked about stocks. It was actually my grandmother. She didn't talk about money because that would have not been appropriate for, in her mind, to talk about money. But stocks was different. And so when I would go over there all the time and she would talk about Exxon and Wrigley's and Wrigley's used to send them like a case of gum at the end of the year to shareholders. And it was just so captivating. And then actually, my mom was a secretary in the 80s at a venture capital firm. And she really started investing then, and you know, I was in my in my teens, and so I was just between my mom and my grandmother had a experience around how successful that can make you to be a long term investor. And maybe Liz, it was like you. I didn't get out of college knowing even remotely what I wanted to do. I moved to Mexico for a year to get my fluency, and then when I came back, I got a job as a cold caller at what I would call a boiler room now today. And it was a, there's no, there's one window looking out to a garage making 250 calls a day. But ultimately I just fell in love with stocks and no one was talking about ETFs didn't exist. Really not even mutual funds were, were popular. It was just stocks. So we would go learn all these stocks, pitch these stocks to the bosses. They would yell at you. Mm -hmm. And if you didn't have grit, if you weren't able to, you know, gather yourself and, When they beat you down when you're pitching them stocks, you weren't gonna succeed. And so, what I really loved this business is my success or failure was purely based on my own abilities versus someone's perception of my abilities.
2: So, here's my story, which is interesting because it's kind of like the polar opposite of brands, and that I grew up, even though I grew up in Connecticut in a suburb of New York City where now that I'm a grown up, I realize like every single person is a financial services person and probably was when I was a kid. My dad was a serial entrepreneur and had small businesses. And like, I never, I didn't know what the stock market was until I was in college. I'd never heard of it. I never knew what it was. But I've always been a worker. I've had a bunch of jobs. So I was working at a grocery store. It was like a fancy high-end grocery store. And like, I loved counting the money in the drawer and counting the money in everyone's drawers. And I would always love to. And then I had another job working at a barn and the woman who ran the barn was was away for a couple of weeks, so I took care of the barn, and I was riding horses with one of the other clients. And I said, oh, what does Mr. Keefe do? She said, oh, Mr. Keefe's a money manager. And confusing money management with counting money in a cash register drawer, I said, oh, I love money management. You know, do you think he'd want a free intern? Because we had this January term program when I was in college. So when I was 19 years old in 1994, I found myself at Keith Managers in New York City as a free intern, you know, claiming to love money management. And Keith Managers was at the time a bank and thrift stock hedge fund. And it was 1994. And it was right when the bank and thrifts were starting this like major merger boom. And it lit up my brain. And to me, it was the most interesting thing I'd ever done, the most interesting place I'd ever been. And what I loved was that the people I I was around were like super smart and they were eloquent and they were well-versed and they knew what was going on globally and they knew what was going on locally and they were research analysts and they were traders and they were economists and they understood the way the world worked. And so I was 19, I'm like, whoa, this is where I wanna be. So then I finagled my way back for an internship the next summer. And when I was 19, I, I said, I'm like, when I grew up, I wanna be a portfolio manager. And I just set my sights on that. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting thing because most people don't come about it that way. But for me, it was very clear. I truly didn't know that this was an industry where there was tons of money to be made. For me, it really was about being well-read and smart and being around people who are smart and logical. And I think the more I've grown up and understood like what is economics, like economics is really like logical problem solving and equations and understanding the way things move and work.
0: It is interesting, the path that everybody took, especially, I think, as females, right? Because it wasn't, you know, I'm younger, but even in my day, it wasn't really common to go into this industry as a female. And I didn't plan on it. I did major in finance, but I came out of school. I I wanted things to be very rules-based, and I wanted there to be an equation, and I wanted there to be an equal sign, and there was a right answer or a wrong answer (laughs) for everything. And the stock market is not that way, right? It doesn't work that way. You can analyze a stock that way and you can estimate what the intrinsic value should be, but the market doesn't act in a linear fashion. Like we said before, you don't have a certain equal sign at the end of it. So I wanted to be in corporate finance where I would be managing basically the finances of one company. And I went along that path thinking that the dream one day was to be a CFO, And I got to my mid-20s and I was interviewing for jobs in corporate finance departments. I didn't get one and I was super bummed about it. And this HR person that I was working with said, well, what about this one? There's a, the chief market strategist needs an analyst and he's interviewed, I don't even know how many people at this point. I was the last person that went in for an interview. I think the thing that I did right was I said, yes, I was open to it. And I said, sure, I'll do that. I don't even know what you're talking about. I don't understand what his job is. I went in and I interviewed. I was the last person he saw. And he took me on. He took a chance on me. I was so green. I didn't Mm -hmm. know anything about investing. I didn't know anything about asset management. And he took me on and realized very quickly that I had a steep learning curve. And I will remember this forever. We sat down at a cafe a few times very early when I worked for him. I went with one yellow legal pad and a pencil. And we sat there and he just talked for. Hours and I wrote, I took as many notes as I could, and he talked about how the market worked. He talked about how the economy interacted with the market, cause and effect. We talked about valuations, I mean, everything under the sun. And I was hooked. That was it. And then the dream became someday I want to be a chief strategist. Someday I want to do what he does, right? But he was like 65, 66 at the time. And I thought, I'm never going to do that until I'm in my 60s. Nobody's going to give me a job like that, right? And then it just sped up. And I think the industry changed and welcomed newer entrants, welcomed newer investors, welcomed women even much more. And here I am, right? So I think one of the things, especially for people, if they're starting a career in this or if they're just starting investing, be open-minded. You don't know the answers to everything. And when you get advice from people, take it into account.
1: But one thing on that, Liz, just one thing I think that you said to me that was so poignant is that you were open to the idea and you said yes? So many people say no because they don't know all of the answers about what they're doing, and I think just being open and saying yes, which is what you do, is such an important reflection that other people should take in their own in their own careers. That it's not all; it's, it's you don't know where you're going to go, but just to be open is so is so important.
2: And I want to build on that too because not only is open, important, but what it does, it allows you to build a foundation. And this is a business, there, there's a book that I love called Range, How Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. It's by David Epstein. And what it talks about is, is you know being a generalist. And so Liz, when you say stay open, like what I thought on that was by staying open, you gave yourself the opportunity to have lots of different experiences in this business. And what I find is those who thrive the most in this business they didn't specialize in only one thing from moment one, like being Mm -hmm. a truly great investor, being a truly great strategist, you need to have broad experience. Like one of the things that I love about Bryn is Bryn touches so many different asset classes. She's an investor. She's an asset allocator, but she knows private equity. She knows public equities like that makes her a collectively fantastic investor. But what I see so often when I'm interviewing people is like, they want to They want to specialize because the world we live in kind of forces that. But being a great investor, the more generalist experience that you can get, the better an investor you'll be.
0: Yep. Yep. All right. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about, about financial literacy and investing is that obviously the three of us have been in this industry for a long time. There is this belief and this sort of Wall Street and then everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. So the everybody else, the individual investor that is, so-called outside the industry, has felt for a long time like it's unfair, Uh, we have some kind of special advantage because we're inside, or or whatever the case may be. I don't want to necessarily get too far down that road, but what I will ask you is, what's the biggest thing that you've learned from being in the industry that maybe other people don't know?
2: So I actually think that the industry pretends to be really brilliant really masters of the universe like only the smartest guys the smartest girls will make the best decisions that is not true this is a business that's all about discipline hard work and practice 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 which if you're an athlete or a musician and that sounds familiar to you like it's true and so i don't think that you need to have all this information at your disposal all the time we do where the you know that's our job but to be a good investor you know to to be a good regular investor, you don't need that. But what you need is you need to be disciplined, right? Just the same way. If you're a golfer, you know, you go to that golf course over and over and over and you work hard, right? You are patient. You know that it takes time and patience and practice. And that is the same with investing. So remember, like, if you're watching, you're like, whoa, that person's so smart. I could never be like them." That's simply not true, right? Just be patient work hard. I think reading is really important. Our friend Bryn here has the biggest brain I know and she reads everything. So the more you read, reading to me, reading about investing is like the practice part. There's patience, there's hard work, but it is not rocket science. And you can also start small, which is, you know, whatever you can do, just start now, put it away, be patient, be disciplined. Do not get frozen because you think it's a master of the universe or you need a big, brilliant brain. You just need to be hard working, I think. I I think also, you know, we get,
1: I mean, Liz, you rattled off a bunch of different stuff, Bloomberg, research, et cetera. I think, though, that investors are drowning in information and starving for knowledge. And to me, the inside scoop is, the inside baseball is 95% of what we read, whether you're an investor or you're, you're us as a professional, what we read and hear is highly perishable. It's like a ripe avocado. It looks and tastes good the first day or two, but then within a week, it's going to be brown and mushy, and you're going to throw it in the trash. And that's the majority of stuff that I think investors get overwhelmed with so much information, but that's not knowledge. And so I actually am a big footnote reader, and I'll read an article, and if I think it's interesting, I actually go to the footnotes, and I end up reading actually the source where it came from. And I find that to be much more interesting than necessarily with the person's perspective. But the source, I spend a lot of time on like St. Louis Fed and like treasury.gov, because that's where so much like free information is. And, And I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books. And so my family would be upset with me if I didn't throw out some of my favorite books that I've made my both my boys read. And I give out as Christmas gifts every year. But the four most important books, I think, for investors to read is, first of all, Annie Duke, Thinking and Bets. She is such a badass. And, you know, so many people play Texas Hold'em, play poker. And so that's a great way for especially, you know, younger people to take that book. And it's really just wonderful about thinking and bets. Um, the second one is Tony Robbins, it's called Money Master the Game. It's so brilliant. The first half of the book is about his thoughts on investing, but in the second half he interviews Ray Dalio, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates and just gives such rich advice. And the third one is a newer book. I know I know Jenny is I think friends with him. It's Morgan Housel, The Psychology of Money. It's it's just so wonderful about the psyche. And the fourth one is it's not an investment book per se. But it's David Rubenstein's book, you know, How to Lead. He takes his interviews that he did on TV and condenses them down to a book. But it really just teaches um, people about just the, how hard it is to run a business. So there, there, there are no shortcuts. And read the footnotes as well. Read books and footnotes.
0: So and one of the other questions, you guys kind of touched on it already. The other questions that I had was younger investors are getting their information from different places, right? We get our information from probably what, what I would consider traditional places. Younger investors, and actually this is a really fascinating stat, 91% of Gen Z investors use social media for investing info. So we're talking about they're getting all their information from Twitter, from Stock Twits, from Reddit, from YouTube. There's tons of YouTube content out there that people are watching. If they're not watching CNBC, they're watching YouTube. They're watching streaming shows, right? So my question to you, and, and you've already mentioned some of them, so obviously there's books out there to read. Are they missing anything? Should they be looking at some of the traditional information?
1: I mean, I'll start really quick just cuz I have my my boys are 20 and 17 and I think YouTube's a little bit different. YouTube has some obviously wonderful how-tos. I think it's it's more of a channel. But I think like with TikTok and some of the other spots, I think that's going to be more short-lived only because what's happening with a lot of individual stocks, and I think a lot of these kids know this, this, we'll say racket, is someone talks about something on TikTok, they're trying to get the stock to go higher, make it pop and move on. And that worked for a while in like mid 2020. You're going to move away from that because once again, people like making money more than they like losing money. I do think though that things like Robinhood, which I think are more gaming apps, originally were gaming apps that were trying to tell you they're about investing app. And so I, I just think that gamification will be great lessons for these younger investors to learn because those best best lessons to learn is lose money when you're young because you don't have that much of it.
2: So when you were saying in the just previous question, Brandon, you were saying there's so much, right? And you were saying you get all this information every day. There's so much of it. It's like an avocado, It you know, it's not useful. I think that the professional investor is as inundated with information and overwhelmed with information as the regular investor. And I don't think as as people parse through what's useful for their investment decision-making, I think they need to parse through that the same way they do for the news they consume. And so you need to be super discerning on your source, right? Just like we all know, and we're all becoming much more savvy and sophisticated with with saying, who's the source? What's the source? Is this real? So the same way you do that for your news, you need to do that for anything with investing and i'm sure that there's good stuff on reddit and twitter and i'm sure that there's predatory stuff so you need to think about who's behind it i always say consider the motivation consider the motivation so like when i was a kid we had five or 10 channels and now there's all these there's all these channels there's all these everyone's competing for your eyeballs you need to think why are they saying that to me what's their motivation and dig into it. I was really upset on March 31st when a Wall Street Journal headline hit my inbox and it said, worst quarter since whatever, Dow drops 550. It was so jarring and alarming, this headline. You take a step back, you're like, the market was down 4.7%. That's after being up 27%, after being up 18, 35, the years before, like, no big deal. But what's the Wall Street Journal? Even the Wall Street Journal, what's their motivation? They need to catch your eyeballs or they can't sell advertising dollars. So as you parse through who's saying it, what's their motivation? Why are they saying it? Are they a real investor? Are they like a wonky academic who wants to pass on good information because that's who they are? Are they predatory? Are they a short seller promoting their own agenda? So just be like really cynical.
0: What if you don't know, right? So if you're on one of those forums like Reddit or StockTwits and somebody's posting information, what if you don't know the person behind it?
2: Yeah. Then then I would say if you don't know, you need to ignore it. You need like dismiss them. You can find better information somewhere else, but you need to go like investigator on it and tease it out. You cannot. If you don't know the person, you cannot assume that they're not predatory.
0: Yeah. Okay, that's fair. All right. So this year obviously has been tough, honestly, not down nearly as much as I would have thought if you asked me in the middle of February, Mm -hmm. but still tough. This is a time that I think a lot of investors are frustrated, as you gave the example, Jenny, the, the woman who's got a month in the market and is already mad. People are frustrated. They don't know where to go. But it's also, I think, a good time to think back to those timeless principles. And Jenny, I know you've already mentioned compounding, but what are some of the timeless principles that you two think about constantly or that you might pass on to, whether it's your children or maybe your client's? Give me a couple piece.
1: There's, there's a man named Bob Farrell. He was Merrill Lynch's head strategist in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, wow. okay? And he has Bob Farrell's 10 rules for investing, which I pull it out, like all, I pulled it out this year. I'm just gonna read a few and then I'll send over the rest. So the first, the first one is, markets tend to return to the mean over time. Markets mean revert. The next one, there are no new eras. You have to remember that. And I think 2020 is a great lesson, or 2021 and 22, about what comes up will come down. And so those like, those first two, I think we all just recently lived that.
2: Mm-hmm. One of the
1: other ones I like, the public buys most at the top and the least at the bottom. Because we all learned in finance to buy low and sell high, but all of the fund flows will tell you that most people buy high and sell low. Fear and greed are stronger than long-term resolve. And then th- th- I won't read all of them, but I love this. When all the experts and forecast agree, something else is going to happen. Kind of feels that way right now, right? Everyone's so negative. And then finally, bull markets are more fun than bear markets, right? There's there's detail under each, each of them, which I won't go into, but I think it's such sage, timeless advice to pull out and reread. It helps me center my compass and where's my north in times of uncertainty
2: hmm Jenny? So I'll give you two examples. I had a client start with me on October 15th, 2007. And that was really the peak of the market. It was a client who'd sold a family property and they funded the account with $2 million on the nose. It was pretty rotten to watch that go down as much as it did. The market was down 60%. The portfolio was down not too far off from that. And in about two and a half years afterwards, the portfolio was flat. And since then, it's up significantly. I had another client who funded his account with a million four in February of 2020. And promptly that portfolio declined by about 35%. And it was painful and excruciating. And the million four now is a million eight. And I think that it's just really important to not be overly cute or overly time it. If you're young, if you have a long time horizon, it doesn't really matter. My brother shared this with me. My brother started investing finally you know, a year or so ago. And I was worried that if I had him put everything he had into the market right away and the market tanked, he'd have a bad experience and not want to continue on. And he was actually quite profound. And he said, Jenny, oh, Jenny, you don't know this one? He said, you know, once when when someone was asked, what's the best pl- time to plant a tree? The answer was 20 years ago. And then they said, okay, fine. What's the second best time to plant a tree? And the second best time to plant a tree is today. And so I think you need to remember that What's going on right now is noise and it's a blip and it's not permanent and it doesn't matter. Even if you invest at the peak before a major collapse, by the time you actually care, your money will be worth more. And I think you you shouldn't overthink it and don't over dramatize or get overly freaked out. Just, you know, just get started.
0: Yeah. Well, okay. So then maybe the last question that I have is when we've overthought things, I think sometimes for people that are intimidated by investing, intimidated by the industry. It's nice to hear the so-called experts have humility and admit that we too make mistakes. But what are some of the mistakes that stand out for you that you've made in your investing journey?
1: I mean, I'll start. I think that an overriding theme that I used to make is I don't want to fall in love with a stock, Mm -hmm. right? It's like everyone's in love with Apple today. Everyone's in love with a lot of stocks today. And so... Because I've I've fallen in love with stocks in the past, I have this motto now that you don't have to make it back the same way you lost it. And I have made the mistake of holding on too long because you fall in love with the stock. But just remember, there's always new ideas. And I try to be a pragmatic and a very stoic investor versus being dogmatic right? Like if you're wrong, don't be dogmatic and try to convince yourself why the market's wrong and you're right. Just be pragmatic about it and move on.
2: I love your words, Bryn. I wrote them down. Pragmatic and stoic. That's perfect. So so my biggest mistake was I started at Goldman Sachs in 1997 and I really got caught up in the dot-com boom. And Mm. I took no money and I made it into a lot of money and I was trading all kinds of crazy calls. And I thought I was really smart. But I was pretty sure I was smart because I'd made so much money. And then the market crashed and I lost all my money. And that was a very, very good lesson for me on you know, on needing to really know what's in there and not investing, for me at least, in companies that I thought were coasting on smoke and fumes. I I came out of that realizing how much, for me at least, valuation matters and that I need a solid foundation in, in what I buy. One of the other things that I think about a lot is I had this wonderful client who was a cardiac surgeon. And this is when I was at Newberger. And he would call me, he'd retired, and he'd call me every single day. And say there were 33 stocks in the portfolio. He didn't care about the 32 of them that were up. He'd only care about the 31. And he'd call every day and obsess over what stock was down. And after a couple years of this, he goes, you know what's so unfair about this is that you can be wrong over and over and it still works out okay for you. And if I'm wrong, someone dies or I get sued badly. And I think that that's something that not everyone can live with. Um, You know, my mother-in-law always jokes about about the weather forecasters. Oh, what a wonderful job. They're wrong half the time and they still get to keep their job. Well, it is not easy to be wrong. But if we let being wrong derail us, we couldn't go on every day. So we as investors and you as investors, you know, whether you're the ones buying the stocks or you're the ones putting your money in light, like the young woman who we started talking about, like, you just need to know that you're not always right. But you need to know that the long term is that the US markets return eight to 10% over time. You need to grit your teeth, bear it, put your head down, be pragmatic and stoic, like Bryn said, and I would say and be flexible. You know, don't be a Jenny in 1997.
0: You're right. It's not easy to be wrong. And also, I think the three of us would know this. It's even harder to be wrong publicly. Mm -hmm. Right. (laughs) When we're wrong, we're we're wrong publicly. And that that takes practice, that takes building up of a thick skin and it takes guts to still go on and have an opinion and put it out there and and know that there's a good possibility that you could be wrong. I'll say it just very quickly, the biggest mistakes that I've made when I was younger, I never took enough risk. I never took enough risk when I was investing. And I even remember an advisor in my first 401k, an advisor told me to invest in the aggressive portfolio. And I said, no, I wanted the moderate one. And I probably wasted so much time in lower risk investments that I could have made a lot more money and just waited it out. And the other thing that I've learned about myself as I've gotten older is I'm pretty good on the entry into an investment, I am bad on the exit. I'm like, like Bryn said, I wait way too long. And a lot of times it's, I might miss the top, it comes back down, and then I'm waiting for that next top before I'm going to sell it. And sometimes that next top never comes. So I wait around, and it's more about opportunity cost, right? So then that money is parked in an investment that is never going to get back to where I want it to be. And then the opportunity cost of me leaving it in there is that I could have done something else. So those are the big mistakes. Okay, One last question. I lied. One more. You both have children. What do you tell them? What's your advice to them about money, about investing?
1: I'll be quick. Pay yourself first. They get irritated when they get Christmas money. Every time they give, they have to give themselves in their brokerage account, some of that money. And my husband and I match that. Mm
0: -hmm. And then if
1: they have a job, they have to first put some of that money into their brokerage account, and then we also match that. So we try to incentivize them, but I think pay yourself first. I do that to myself every single time. I always put money in my brokerage account every single month, right? And so to me, that is time-tested advice for my boys.
2: So I presume that neither of my kids are going into this business. So they're 13 and 14 now, so probably about five or six years ago. I opened small UTMA accounts for them and put a little bit of money in. And made them choose and buy four stocks because what I want them to have is the vocabulary. I want for them to be, you know, 20 or 30 and not be afraid of this. And I want them to know that they went through the pandemic and we didn't really talk about their portfolios because it didn't really matter. And I want them to understand what fees are and I want them to roll through things and I want them to learn those lessons of not trying to make it back in what you lost it in now. And I want them to learn the lesson of punishment, frankly, of being overly conservative. So all I'm trying to do for them is vocabulary. And that goes back again to the younger clients, stepkid, who I was like, I'm not doing this for you because you have to get this vocabulary on your own.
0: I think we solved all the world's problems today. I thank you so much for being on this and sharing such wonderful wisdom. Well, as promised, so much good information, so much good insight from those two lovely ladies. Some of the things that I want to highlight and my favorite quotes of that episode be open minded. Have the wisdom to say yes so that you can get enough broad experience to be a good investor or just in your career. Don't pigeonhole yourself. Second, don't be fooled into thinking that you have to be brilliant or that it's as complicated as rocket science to be an investor. To be a good investor, you need discipline, hard work, and practice. And then this is one of my personal favorites because it's so true. Investors are drowning in information but starving for knowledge. There is no longer a lack of information out there. You can get information anywhere. But be discerning about where to learn about investing and also always keep in mind the source of that information or the source of that news. Another good tenet to always remember, you don't have to make it back the same way you lost it. Be a stoic investor. And one of the big lessons that we all have to learn is that you will lose money at times. Not everything is going to go up at the same time. Not everything is going to go up, period. So you will lose money and learning from that loss is something that's really, really important for everybody to have. And lastly, maybe my favorite quote, this was Brins. pay yourself first always put money into that brokerage account, put money into your investment account and just keep it moving. So thank you so much again for listening. And I look forward to bringing the next episode to you soon. For more from me, check out my weekly column on the markets and economy every Thursday morning on the SoFi blog at SoFi.com slash blog. And follow me on Twitter for daily takes on the market at Liz Youngstrap. The important part is produced by SoFi in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Sarah Lee Kane, our producer, Brian Rivers, our production manager, and Jeff Emptman, our editor and sound engineer. SoFi can't guarantee future financial performance and past performance is no guarantee. This podcast should be used for informational purposes only and not deemed as a recommendation. Our automated investing is via SoFi Wealth, LLC, and is a registered investment advisor. Our active investing is via SoFi Securities LLC, member FINRA SIPC. For additional disclosures related to the SoFi Invest platforms, please visit SoFi.com legal.